This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey everyone, Nate Hale here. This is part two of a special two-part episode on the United States government's psychic spy program. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I suggest you go back and do so. We'll be right here waiting for you. And now, on with the show. During the 1890s, a French woman named Catherine Elise Muller, who went by the pseudonym Helene Smith, began earning a reputation for herself in the spiritualist community by claiming she could put herself into a self-hypnotic state and converse with such historical figures as Victor Hugo and Marie Antoinette. While in these trances, Smith often spoke in Italian, Hindi, and other languages that she did not speak fluently while she was awake. She even claimed to have psychically traveled to Mars, could speak fluent Martian, and tried to prove this by painting several Martian landscapes. From 1894 to 1898, a psychology professor from the University of Geneva named Theodore Flournoy studied Helene Smith, and wrote a 447-page book about her. Professor Flournoy concluded that Smith's psychic visions were actually the result of something he called cryptomnesia. Flournoy believed that the actual source of Smith's information were her own repressed memories of things like books she'd read as a child, and half-forgotten conversations she'd heard throughout her life, including foreign languages she'd only heard briefly. As for the times when she began speaking what she claimed to be the Martian language, Flora and I chalked this up to glossolalia, or speaking in tongues, a common practice in some Christian sects. Cryptomnesia would later be recognized by a large number of skeptics, legal scholars, and the American Psychological Association. It would even be cited in a few notable plagiarism cases. The most famous of which was probably that of Helen Keller, who, in 1892, was accused of plagiarizing a short story she'd written in Braille titled The Frost King. It turned out several passages of Keller's story were practically identical to that of a story by Margaret Canby titled The Frost Fairies. None other than Mark Twain jumped to Keller's defense, stating that the young, blind, and deaf woman's ability to so perfectly memorize passages of another person's story should be treated like a miracle rather than a crime. Then in 1903, noted psychologist Carl Jung wrote his own paper titled Cryptomnesia, where he cited the case of German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who himself evidently copied a section of his book Thus Spoke Zarathustra from another source. Jung identified a four-page section of the book as being practically identical to that of another book published 50 years earlier. When he wrote to Nietzsche's sister and pointed this out, the woman admitted to him that she and her brother had read that same book together when they were children. This concept fascinated Jung, that the mind could work in layers like that and file away pieces of information that could be summoned back up in unexpected ways. Jung used this concept to help develop his own theories on what he described as the collective unconscious. In 1936, Jung published a paper in which he explained that while individuals are a collection of unique experiences, there also exists a common and universal set of experiences that all people share. He described this collective unconscious 
as being something akin to the reptilian brain, the most basic of all brain functions in all mammals. Jung rejected the idea that we humans are all born as blank slates, and that rather, we all share this collective unconscious to help develop our individual personalities. This collective unconscious is also sometimes associated with theories in the way psychic abilities are supposed to work. The idea some researchers have put forth is that psychics are able to tap into a sort of internet of people, and thus display abilities that seem out of this world to most of us who don't experience them. One person who spent years trying to wrap his head around the idea of psychic powers is Dale Graff, chief scientist of the Advanced Missile Systems Forecast Section at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. In 1976, the Department of Defense took over control of a psychic research program at the Stanford Research Institute that had formerly been run by the CIA in response to reports the Soviet Union had their own robust psychic spy program. Graf was a scientist the DOD tasked with performing a classified study on the parallel research programs in order to determine if it had practical military applications. What the Department of Defense didn't know at the time was that Graf already had his own deeply personal interest in psychic phenomena. Since eight years earlier, he'd had his own profound psychic experience. I'm Nate Hale, and the closest I've ever had to a psychic experience was getting ESPN on cable. And this is The Conspirators. In August 1968, the then 34-year-old Dale Graff had just returned from Vietnam where he'd been sent overseas to teach U.S. pilots survivability tactics in air-to-air combat. He married his high school sweetheart in 1958, and they had two children, ages 7 and 9. In 68, Graf was stationed in Hawaii on a two-year transfer to Hickam Air Force Base. Living in Hawaii at the height of the Vietnam War might seem like a pretty good deal to some people, but Graf was having a difficult time coming to terms with his place in the military. It grated on him that he wasn't out there on the front lines along so many other brave soldiers fighting in the jungles. He came home one day in a foul mood decided to hit up one of the local beaches and go for a swim to clear his mind. So he packed up Barbara, the kids, and a surfboard and made his way to Bellows Beach. Graf was in excellent physical condition, but he also had terrible eyesight. And that day he forgot and left his prescription goggles behind. Nonetheless, he remained bound and determined to head out onto the ocean, despite the fact a storm was rapidly brewing on the horizon. By the time they got to the beach, Graf noticed that the lifeguard had already gone home for the day and the red warning flag was up. But he was in such a mood that he decided to throw caution to the wind and venture out into the massive waves anyway. He left Barbara and the kids on the beach and began paddling away from shore. But as the waves grew larger and the sky grew darker, Graf soon began to have second thoughts and realized he should turn back toward shore. Out there, bobbing in the ocean, the wind was roaring all around him, making it impossible to hear anything. He realized the storm was coming in faster than expected, and his arms were quickly growing tired. He tried to focus past the pain and fatigue, and just get back to dry land. But then, over the deafening noise of the waves and the wind, he heard what he could swear was a distant cry for help. Except Graf knew this was impossible. 
There was no way he should have been able to hear anything. Yet he was still positive he heard the sound of someone crying out for help nearby. He tried scanning all around him, but he couldn't see anyone. One thing he could see was that the sky had turned black overhead and he realized he was in real danger if he didn't get back to the beach fast. But he still couldn't shake the feeling he wasn't alone out there in the water. But that was crazy. There was no one else out there on the beach except his wife and kids, and there was no way in hell it could be any of them. Barbara would never let their children head out into treacherous water like this, and Barbara couldn't swim. But then... As Graf continued paddling towards shore, he suddenly got an overwhelming urge to change course. Without knowing why, he turned his surfboard around and began paddling back out to sea. Something in his mind kept telling him he had to head in this particular direction, maybe 50 or 100 yards further. He realized he was headed straight for a coral reef, which was almost certainly a death trap. But nonetheless, something compelled him to keep going, even though he couldn't see or hear anyone else. Something in his brain demanded he continued moving in that direction. Then as he got lifted up on the crest of a giant wave, he came crashing right back down on top of another person. It was his wife, Barbara, and she was very close to drowning. Graf didn't know what his wife was doing out there, but he could tell her mouth and lungs were full of seawater. He grabbed her unconscious body and dragged it up onto the surfboard. Then he began paddling furiously towards shore. But then they got caught in a rip current, which Graf knew meant certain doom for the both of them if he didn't make exactly the right moves next. He began swimming parallel to the shore. The muscles in his arms were on fire with fatigue. He couldn't even think of where his children might be at that moment. The rip current kept threatening to drag them both down to the bottom of the ocean. Graf was growing increasingly certain they were both going to die. Then, one more curious thing happened. Suddenly it was as if Graf was outside of his body, floating high above in a bird's eye view. From that perspective, Graf was able to clearly navigate the course he needed to take with Barbara to safely reach shore. There was a sense of timelessness to the entire experience. He suddenly felt as if he had all the time in the world. And practically before he knew it, he and Barbara were safely back on shore. His frightened children were there waiting for him. Graf dragged Barbara up onto the sand and performed CPR to revive her. They all managed to return home safely that day. After that, neither he or Barbara ever wanted to talk about what went on that day. Instead, the following day, Graf went by himself to the local library and began researching all he could on psychic phenomena. That was when he stumbled onto Carl Jung's concept of the collective unconscious and began to develop his own theories that the two concepts might be connected. So when the Department of Defense came to Graf out of the blue eight years later and asked him, of all people, to research the viability of using psychics for military purposes, Graf thought this was just one more sign that something more was going on in the universe than traditional science accepted. It should come as no surprise, then, that Graf's report on the practicality of psychic soldiers in the U.S. military played a big hand in getting the Department of Defense on board with funding the program the CIA had begun years earlier into the use of psychic spies. But before the military agreed to fund the program, they insisted on making some big changes beforehand. For starters, they gave it a new code name, Operation Grill Flame. They also decided early on that it just wasn't practical trying to enlist the aid of a bunch of untrained civilians. What they wanted were trained soldiers used to following orders, 
who would then be able to train other soldiers to be psychics as well. They consulted with Kit Green, the CIA scientist who oversaw the psychic research program at the Stanford Research Institute. Green voiced his doubts early on that he didn't think it was possible to train someone to be psychic, but those doubts were ignored. The military came up with a relatively modest plan at first. They would select a small team of six potential candidates, a collection of soldiers and civilian employees who showed some indications that they might possess some sort of latent psychic abilities. For the first year, the DoD would just put them through some basic tests with remote viewing just to see if it was even possible. And from there, the plan was to develop their abilities over time toward a third year, where they would then be fully put into action. But things didn't play out according to plan. Back when the CIA was still in charge of the program, they had informally come up with what many in the agencies called the eight martini results. Meaning these were the results when one of their psychics did something so unbelievable, you'd need to consume eight martinis to believe it. Operation Grill Flame had its first eight martini results sometime around September 1979. We don't know the exact date because some details of the report remain classified. But that was when an enlistee into the program named Joe McMonagall stunned everyone. Around that time, the National Security Council delivered an official request to the Office of the Assistant Chief of Staff of Intelligence to have one of the members of Operation Grill Flame help them out with a covert surveillance mission. Warren Officer McMonagall was brought into a room at a classified location and seated at a table. There he was presented with a sealed envelope containing a photograph and asked to provide information about the image inside. What McMonagall didn't know at the time was that the photo showed a satellite image of a remote-classified Soviet military base. McMonagall focused his mind and began to describe some sort of large building near a shoreline, something like a big lake or a bay. He said he could smell gas, like maybe it was a gas refinery or a smelting plant. There was a lot of construction going on all around involving men wearing construction hats. He could see arc welders and men cutting and shaping metal. They were all working on some sort of large vessel. Not a ship, but a massive submarine. He got an impression about huge propellers, and then he began to describe how the vessel had these giant fins that looked to him just like shark fins. After that, he had difficulty focusing on anything else. He just kept mentioning over and over how much this vessel the men were building resembled a giant shark. His handlers for the test eventually managed to get him back on track and McMonagall went on to describe how the vessel was somewhere between four to six stories tall. And he was pretty sure it was some sort of prototype weapon. By the time McMonagall's session was done, he had recorded 46 pages of notes on the vessel's specifications. The Army's Office of the Assistant Chief of Staff of Intelligence sent the McMonagall report up the chain of command. Several high-ranking military officers immediately dismissed the psychic's intelligence as a bunch of nonsense. It didn't make sense to any of the military commanders that the Soviets would build a submarine inside a dry dock building a hundred yards away from the shore, like the one McMonagall described. But during McMonagall's session, he also described a large concrete canal for controlling the flow of water. But satellite photos taken shortly before showed no mysterious canal leading between the building and the docks, only flat earth. Yet four months later, in January 1980, new satellite images sent shockwaves throughout the intelligence community. They showed an enormous submarine tethered alongside a dock at the Severodvinsk Naval Base, 
that was unlike any Soviet design the U.S. military had seen before. Those same satellite images also received a huge channel that had been carved out of the frozen earth using dynamite that stretched between a large building and the water, just as McMonagall described. These new satellite images clearly showed the Soviets had been busy constructing a new generation of nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarine. NATO would come to report the sub's name as a Typhoon-class sub. This, incidentally, was the same sort of sub Tom Clancy described in his book Hunt for Red October. But the Soviets had their own name for the classified project because of its unique fin structure on the outside of the vessel. They called this sub the Shark. Around this same time, another major event happened that forced Operation Grill Flame to jumpstart into action early on. On November 4, 1979, a group of Iranian college students seized control of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and held a group of 52 American diplomats and citizens hostage. The six members of Operation Grill Flame were woken up in the middle of the night in order to come into the office. They were then taken to a suite of hotel rooms in Laurel, Maryland, where they were sequestered for weeks in order to remote view the location where the hostages were being held. It turns out the group was able to produce accurate intelligence about 45% of the time. And while that's a surprisingly accurate figure, much higher than simple chance should allow. It also meant that more than half the visions the group described were useless. No one ever expected the Iran hostage crisis to carry on as long as it did. By April, the crisis was still going on and the members of Operation Grill Flame were still being sequestered in the hotel. Then things got weird one night when... One of the members of the team had a sudden overpowering vision of someone rappelling out of a helicopter. Then another member of the team did too, and then another after that. Each of these team members began to add on to what they were seeing and describe further details. But then things spiraled out of control when one of the psychics saw an explosion in fire and began to panic. This panic spread throughout the group like the vision was somehow contagious. One team member who was only identified as Nancy S. began freaking out when she described what she said was a group of angry gorillas armed with tiny rockets. That was followed by a huge fireball and death. The psychics became so disturbed that their military handler decided to call the operation quits and send them all home. But that night, President Jimmy Carter went on TV and told a stunned nation about a failed hostage rescue attempt that resulted in a helicopter crash in the Iranian desert 200 miles southeast of Tehran. Eight servicemen and one Iranian civilian died in the chaos. After that, Nancy S. and one other team member quit the program altogether. But they were eventually replaced, and Operation Grill Flame continued. They would continue to be used by the military on several occasions, mostly in terrorist or hostage situations. Whereas the group was reported to produce some useful information, it soon became apparent that burnout was a real problem for the psychic soldier program. It seemed the intelligence the group produced grew worse over time. It was speculated that boredom or fatigue might have been the root cause. The Army consulted with Kit Green, who once ran the program for the CIA, to see if he could figure out what was going wrong. Green again voiced his concerns that he didn't think it was possible to train people to be psychic. He thought it was just something you either had or you didn't. But the military was in charge now, and Green's concerns were once again ignored. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we continue, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Buttercloth, the world's most comfortable shirt. And I'm not just saying that either. The one problem I always have with men's dress shirts is that they're just not that comfortable to wear all day. But Buttercloth is something different. The company was started by a young fashion designer named Dan Tran. Dan is a Vietnamese immigrant who grew up learning to sew sitting on his mother's lap. He and his family emigrated to the U.S. when he was 20, and from there he worked hard to put himself through one of the best fashion design schools in the country. Dan has worked for some of the biggest fashion brands in the world, and he used to wear t-shirts into the office, but would have to change into stiff, scratchy dress shirts when it came time for meetings. He began to wonder why he couldn't create a new kind of dress shirt, one that was every bit as comfy as his favorite tees. So Dan went and developed a revolutionary long-fiber cotton that he called buttercloth, this fabric was so revolutionary that it caught the attention of the TV show Shark Tank, where investor Robert Herjavec loved it so much, he invested $250,000 in the company. After trying out several buttercloth shirts recently, I have to say that was money well spent. These shirts are incredibly comfortable. The special blend of 100% long fiber cotton goes through a unique manufacturing process to make the shirts light, stretchable, and as comfy as your favorite t-shirt. They're not stiff and scratchy like your typical men's dress shirt, and their six-way stretch and exclusive double-finish construction means they'll hold up to all sorts of wear and tear, too. My personal favorite has to be the one I own from the Icy Cotton Collection, which is actually woven with a special process that infuses cotton with organic mint fibers. During this long, hot summer, the mint fibers have a natural cooling effect that works incredibly with the breathability of the long-fiber cotton. I was wearing my Icy Cotton shirt on a warm summer day, and it was so cool and comfortable, it was hard to believe it was a dress shirt. Whether you need big or tall, long sleeve, short sleeve, Buttercloth has you covered with whatever style shirt you need. I love my Buttercloth dress shirts, and I'm sure you will too. Right now, Buttercloth is offering the Conspirators listeners 20% off on your first purchase. Go to Buttercloth.com TC to receive 20% off your first full price order. That's Buttercloth.com TC. And now... Back to the show. In 1981, the psychic program moved to a New Age retreat in the Blue Ridge Mountains called the Monroe Institute, where it was placed under the command of Major General Albert Stubblebine. The program was then given the rather boring-sounding name of Rapid Acquisition Personnel Training, or RAPT. But what they were doing was far from boring. General Stubblebine quickly became a true believer in the psychic program. He was notable for coming to believe not only were mental telepathy and remote viewing possible, but he thought the powers of the mind were practically limitless. He also got himself in some hot water years later when he publicly expressed his doubts that a plane could have caused as much damage as it did when it crashed into the Pentagon on 9-11. In John Ronson's book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, he describes Stubblebine getting it in his head one day that if he concentrated hard enough, he could actually dematerialize and walk through walls. Newsflash? He couldn't. 
The actual Ministeric Goats in the book's title, by the way, refers to a now infamous goat lab at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, where according to Ronson, special forces soldiers recruited into the psychic program were being trained to kill goats with the power of their mind. According to the book, one of the members of the team even claimed to have done it, although later reports by other participants in the RAP program deny it to this day. What we do know is this phase of the psychic research program really began to mark its decline. At the Monroe Institute, the program members were ordered to spend their days and nights meditating in a tiny room barely big enough for a bed, for hours at a time trying to tap into their psychic abilities. They were guided along by meditation tapes that would supposedly lead them deeper and deeper through different levels of consciousness. As the group progressed, they were later brought together and told to lie in a circle holding hands. Then a group leader would try to get them to channel their collective psychic energy for remote viewing. Kit Green went on to write his own report on Wrapped, in which he claimed the program did more harm than good. Green didn't think all the meditating was actually training anyone to be psychic. Rather, he thought it was teaching them all how to enter a self-hypnotic state, where they convinced themselves they had psychic abilities when in actuality, they didn't. Green worried what might happen to a person's mind under these conditions. Two months later, everyone found out. That was when one of the team members had a psychotic break, ripped off his clothing, and held a secretary hostage while threatening to stab her with a pen. He had become convinced the terrified secretary was a secret agent working for a foreign enemy. The fallout from the incident was immediate. The program at the Monroe Institute was shut down and General Stubblebind was forced into retirement. In July 1984, the Army canceled the remote viewing program. But that still wasn't the final chapter of the U.S. government's involvement with psychics, which, by the time it was winding down, had come to be known as Project Stargate. Within a few months, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the intelligence branch of the U.S. military, revived the psychic program once again. This time, the DIA decided to change tactics and to no longer attempt to train any new psychics. Rather, they focused on recruiting a few individuals with a proven track record for psychic abilities. The new leader they put in charge was a man named Ed Dames. Like General Stubblebine, he was a true believer in the paranormal. But Dames took things even further when he began pushing the team to use their psychic abilities for more extreme purposes, including looking for the lost city of Atlantis and trying to figure out who killed John F. Kennedy. Remember Joseph McMonagall? Well, one particularly noteworthy test he was involved in was written about in a now-declassified report under the unassuming title of Mars Exploration, May 22, 1984. During this test, McMonagall was brought into a room and given a sealed envelope, much like occurred years earlier when he discovered the top-secret Russian Typhoon submarine. Only in this particular incident, McMonagall was being asked to remote view a location much, much farther away than Russia. McMonagall was told not to open the envelope yet, but instead given a set of coordinates to focus on. What followed was a bizarre interview you can read for yourself on the CIA website. He begins by describing his sense of a group of tall, thin beings wearing strange clothing that he said were like shadows. It was sort of like they were there, but not there anymore. He was told to direct his mind back to a time when the beings were there. At first, he said it was difficult, like trying to tune a television to a fading signal. But then, once he managed to tune in, he said he began to see other things too, like a large obelisk that reminded him of the Washington Monument carved channels or roadbeds, and most strikingly, 
massive pyramids that were being used as a shelter for these beings, whom McMonagall described as an ancient dying race. When McMonagall's visions finally ended, that was when he was finally allowed to look inside the envelope to reveal where it was he'd been remote viewing. Inside the envelope was a 3x5 card that read, The Planet Mars. Time of interest? Approximately 1 million years B.C. The psychic program continued running under Ed Dames for another five years before all hell broke loose. After a news story came out that Dames had been contracting the services of his psychics out to a private company. Remember, this was a project that was supposed to be classified. So when it ended up being reported in the New York Times, this was a big problem. It was also revealed at the time that shortly before Dames was set to retire, he began working with a new recruit, Captain David Morehouse, to write a book about the program. Morehouse ended up getting into hot water of his own with the military and wound up facing court-martial for a laundry list of offenses. He ended up pleading insanity, putting the blame squarely on his involvement with Project Stargate. The book was never published, but the damage to Project Stargate's reputation was done. As soon as Congress caught wind that the military was funding a program for psychic soldiers, they opened up an official investigation and began demanding answers. They turned to an outside group called the American Institute for Research to look at the program. The head of the review team was a scientist named Ray Hyman, and he had been acquainted with the clandestine government program into psychic research practically from its very beginning. Back in 1972, he wrote a highly skeptical report about the psychic research program at the Stanford Research Institute, in which he expressed his grave doubts about their results. Hyman had since gone on to join forces with several other skeptics, including science writer Martin Gardner and former stage magician James Randi to form the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. James Randi had made headlines for himself for his lifelong crusade to prove the Israeli psychic Yuri Geller was a fraud. He also famously carried a check for a million dollars around with him that he said he would pay to anyone to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that psychic abilities were real. He once made a laughing stock out of the Stanford Research Institute when he sent a couple young stage magicians into the Stanford purporting to be real psychics and managed to fool the scientists into believing they were the real deal. Hyman's SRI group was only given two months to investigate Project Stargate, which meant they had no time to delve into the 23 years of collected research the program had accumulated. Instead, they chose to focus their investigation on only 40 recent sessions conducted between 1994 and 1995 by three randomly chosen remote viewers. Back in 1972, Hyman was never able to pinpoint an exact way in which the Stanford Research Institute's experiments were flawed but he insisted they had to be flawed in some way in order for them to get the results they did. In 1995, Hyman and the other members of the committee looking at Project Stargate were still unable to find any methodological failings in the test that were conducted, which made it all the more difficult to reconcile the surprisingly positive results the scientists got from the psychics. One of the researchers working with Dr. Hyman was forced to conclude the test subjects were indeed able to tap into some undiscovered mental ability. Even Dr. Hyman was forced to admit the results he was seeing were striking. That is, if they were real. But he was still insisted in his final report there must be some undiscovered flaw in the testing that he was unaware of. Something that would logically explain everything away. After Hyman issued his report, Project Stargate was shut down for good. When news broke that the military had been using psychics, everyone began treating it like a big joke. 
John Ronson's book, The Men of Stare at Goats, and the movie they made from it both focus on the complete absurdity of a lot of what was going on. The CIA and the Department of Defense both went on the record claiming the psychic program was a complete waste of time and money that never produced any usable intelligence. But we know at the same time, based on so many stories that have since become declassified, that's not really the case. Skeptics like Ray Hyman and James Randi will always point to trickery, poor scientific methodology, and basic human gullibility being the reason some of the psychic tests appeared so successful. Other researchers who try to apply some scientific reasoning to psychic abilities have pointed to quantum physics perhaps playing some role in explaining ESP, remote viewing, and mental telepathy. Some theoretical physicists point to something called quantum entanglement, in which subatomic particles in the future can actually affect the past. Perhaps the way these particles communicate with one another is something that some humans are just able to access. There were several scientists from the Stanford Research Institute who always felt magnetism was somehow tied to extrasensory phenomena. When they realized Uri Geller and the other psychics they tested seemed to have a measurable effect on their magnetic instruments. Some radical psychologists who subscribe to Carl Jung's theories on the collective unconscious also think that this sort of universal database of human brain function might also be something certain individuals can tap into. Although officially the U.S. government's research into psychic abilities ended in 1995, even that's not completely the end of the story. In 2014, the Office of Naval Research began a four-year, $3.85 million research program into reports they'd begun receiving from Iraq and Afghanistan of soldiers experiencing premonitions that helped them get out of dangerous situations. For example, in 2006, Staff Sergeant Martin Rickberg used this so-called spidey sense to prevent carnage near an improvised explosive device. When news became public about the program, Navy scientists were quick to play down the psychic aspect. Instead, they claimed they were just looking for ways to accelerate this spidey sense in soldiers that was a result of natural intuition. If they could find a way to do so, the scientists said, they thought they could possibly save a lot of lives. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I want to remind Conspirators listeners you can get 20% off right now on your first order from Buttercloth, the world's most comfortable shirt, simply by going to buttercloth.com TC to receive 20% off your first full price order. That's buttercloth.com TC. In other business, I have a new Patreon supporter that I want to thank. Thank you to Alejandro for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons to the Conspirators get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. In fact, I'll have just released a brand new mini-episode by the time you're hearing this now. If you're not on Patreon but still want to help us out, another great way you can do so is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and spreads the good word to more people. It's like a pyramid scheme, but a lot less sketchy. If you're not an Apple, not to worry, we're also available in most of your favorite places you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, you can find us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. Feel free to reach out and let us know how we're doing. You can also send us a good old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time. <laughs>